0: This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniform Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniform Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice
1: where we give you actionable intel to support what you do, one colleague to another. Hello, and welcome, everybody, to CDP's Practical for Your Practice podcast. I'm Corinne Lefkowitz. I'm really excited to be here today to talk about our uh, topic of mast treatments for PTSD. And I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Kevin Holloway. Hi, Kevin.
0: Hi, Corinne. How are you? Good. Are you
1: excited also about today's Oh, topic?
0: man. I'm, I'm always excited for anything that we can, like, do faster. I don't know why, but that's something that <laughs> I get excited about. So this is a very <laughs> cool topic for that.
1: Um, fast but well, preferably? Well, of course.
0: Absolutely. Fast? Not yeah. just fast for fast steak, like, of course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I had the feeling you would be excited about this because you and I are, of course, PTSD treatment nerds, and uh, yes. we love talking about evidence-based treatments for PTSD. And um, we are so lucky to be joined today by Dr. Cindy Yamakowski, who is uh, an expert in this field. She's the Associate Director of the Mentoring Program of the Na- at the National Center for PTSD and has been researching this topic for quite some time. Hello, Cindy.
2: Hi, how are
1: you guys?
0: Good. Glad to have you on. This is Um, impressive. Exciting.
2: Thank you. Well, I am certainly excited about this too. So I'm happy to hopefully share my excitement with all of you, but thank you for having me. Yeah, we're delighted. So I... Um, May
1: have mentioned before we logged on that um, just for some background, Kevin and I, as I said, are both um, subject matter experts in evidence-based treatments for PTSD. So I do a lot of teaching and consulting on cognitive processing therapy. Kevin does a lot of teaching and consulting on prolonged exposure. Uh Um, And we have certainly um, loved doing the treatments, but have run into some issues, some challenges with how it's delivered in a standard fashion.
0: I really hope these are very normal challenges that other people run into too,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. So we were hoping that you might start us off, Cindy, by talking to us about what you've experienced that led you to get interested in this topic of mass delivery and maybe some of the, the challenges that you've seen with these treatments as they were delivered in a standard way.
2: Yes, certainly. So, first to normalize for you, um, you are not alone in some of those challenges. Yes, if you are you. <laughs> concerned, <laughs> hopefully we can start with um, relieving you of that anxiety. But um, so, you know, prior to coming to um, the National Center for PTSD, um, I ran um, the PTSD and trauma programs at um, a large medical center in the VA. And one thing that I was aware of and having, um, you know, from my personal experiences, but also having conversations with the clinicians in my program is same with you guys. We really loved doing PE. We love doing CPT. We could see the benefits when a veteran was able to get through the uh, full protocol and hung in there with us. But one thing we did notice pretty early on is we did have some trouble keeping people engaged. Mm -hmm. We tried lots of different strategies, like what kind of support? Do we need more training? We asked ourselves those same questions. Maybe it's something we're doing. Um, But I think we were left with that same concern that there seems to be some barriers and seems to be um, some challenges for some of our veterans being able to finish these um, treatments that we know to be quite effective. So we didn't come up with, and we didn't have any immediate solutions, but we were left just pondering. There, there has to be some other approach here. So fast forward, uh, maybe maybe six months later, um, was attending an international conference with some of my colleagues, and we started to hear about some exciting work being done of delivering the treatments more rapidly. Um, But what we were hearing when when we sat there was, first of all, these were being done um, for veterans or service members that were going and staying in a program. Um, These programs, as we listened, we had the perception that they had a lot more resources than we had. So we became skeptical. That's great. That's nice. I'm not sure how that applies to me. I'm not sure we could do that in our environment. Um, we also had some skepticism as we listened, um, about, I'm not quite sure why we would do that. Right. At first we heard, yes, it's quicker and are people doing it quicker just to prove they can do it? What's the benefit? So thankfully we sat there, um, we held our skepticism, but also had a little bit of an open mind to listen. And one thing that was astounding that we heard was the completion rates. Mm -hmm. We were hearing programs, again, these were outside the VA, um, but we were hearing people talk about completion rates of like 90% or higher. And that made us really pause and say, hey, maybe there's something there. But again, came back to our our environments. We thought, I'm not sure how we can do this. We have lots of veterans that need to get in for care. Um, How will we be able to do something where we can deliver treatment more rapidly? Um, So thankfully, I had a very strong team, a lot of very creative people, innovative people, and um, we decided that we were going to pilot at our facility um, a plan where we could meet our veterans, um, either in an outpatient environment, because that was part of the care that most of us were providing, or if veterans were there staying in a residential environment, um, but really trying to get the treatments to them more rapidly. Um, there was a few things, though, that we had to keep in mind that were um, critical for us. First, we wanted to assure that we maintain choice for our veterans. So we had to think of some strategies. If someone comes in and they want, for example, CPT, can we pivot and quickly do that? What if they do shared decision making and want PE? But how can we at the same program offer both? Um But also, um, I think perhaps the biggest challenge, and maybe many listeners also um, can relate to this, is we had to come up with a strategy to deliver the treatments without adding any additional resources. And that became, I think, our our first big um, question, right? Is how do you do this? How do you take something that's designed to be delivered weekly and do it three, four, five, or more times per week? Um so we we had to do um a lot of math and a lot of thinking about how access into our clinic was working but it actually reminded us of the initial conversations that we had when we were thinking about doing evidence-based treatments right if we go back years maybe decades before depending on when as a provider as a system somebody shifted we had these kind of conversations at the beginning right how do we take somebody and for a shorter period of time give them more, but still make sure we have a flow for other people? We were taking the same idea. We were just pivoting it a little bit more, you know, turning on its side and saying we're gonna give even more, but over an even shorter period of time. So, long story short, right, we came up with a way to pilot this um, at the VA I was at. Um, and we found some pretty exciting things. Um, so the first thing that we found um is we um, were able to look at veterans going through care during the same period of time that we're doing weekly treatment. And then we also looked at the veterans that were going through at the same time doing mass treatment. Now, this wasn't a randomized clinical trial. We really had to figure out the flow and it was more of looking at the feasibility within a clinic. But um, one of the really, like I said, exciting things we found was the veterans that were going through weekly treatment we were seeing the same completion rates that we see in the literature and the research um, when we look at what's happening within like actual clinical practice, which was unfortunately completion rates of about 50%, um, maybe even a hair below. Um, we were seeing that, but when we looked at the veterans that were going through our mass treatment, so we gave them the choices of um, doing treatment three times a week or five times a week during this time period, we were seeing their completion rates coming in at 87%
0: goodness. That's amazing. super exciting. That's huge. Yeah.
2: Yes, it really is. And we also looked at the clinical outcomes and compared if they were doing weekly um, versus if they were doing mass treatment. And for those that completed, we didn't see any statistical difference in their outcomes. So we were doing it quicker, getting more people through, but we were seeing the same results. And if that isn't exciting enough, one thing that was even more exciting is we had a um, A very, um, very special interest, I think, and expertise in our clinic in treating veterans with co-occurring PTSD and substance use. So we wanted to look at those veterans separately, because I don't know about you guys, but when I work with somebody weekly that has PTSD and active substance use, I noticed they were even more difficult to get through the protocols. Mm -hmm. So, So we did, we broke those apart to look at that in even more detail. And so the veterans that went through weekly treatment that had co-occurring substance use they um their completion rates were approximately 35%. But when we looked at the veterans that did mass treatment they were almost 80% completion rate. Wow.
0: Wow. Well so yes. let me ask this like how do you how do you account for that cuz I think it makes sense on the one hand where yeah you know, PE and CPT are both considered short-term treatments, right? Like these are mm-hmm. not years long of psychoanalysis mm-hmm. or, or another kind of approach. We're talking, you know, 10 weeks, 12 weeks of mm-hmm. of individual therapy. And so on the one hand, you know, it, it is short-term therapy. We expect that a lot of people will be able to complete that. And then on the other hand too, I, I think about, you know, like coming three times, five times a week, that's pretty intense and and could be Pretty disruptive to somebody's life if they're functioning not well, because I mean, that's not coming to our clinics if they're functioning well, but you know, if they if they have other obligations outside the home. So how, I guess I'm, I'm trying to help my help me wrap my head around, you know, like wh- what are the some of those issues that were causing people to drop out early that mass treatment addresses?
2: I think that's a great question because that, again, what you're speaking of was our initial question, our initial concern about this. And also, our initial concern was maybe this is too much. I know you didn't Mm. mention that specifically, but that was a concern too, is if somebody's struggling doing, you know, talking about this every day, maybe that's going to be too much for them. But, you know, if we really reflect on, um, you know, analogy I like to think about is, you know, what is the quickest way through the fog and it's Mm. to keep walking. Right. And I think sometimes we ask people, right. We we're opening up something and they come in, they work on this in the session and they do their homework, hopefully in between, but it's these periods in between where they're in distress. And even if they don't experience an exacerbation of their distress, We know right, that avoidance is one of the hallmark symptoms of PTSD, so it gives them more time to avoid. Or if they have this time in between where they're feeling increased distress, that it's harder for them to hang in there, and we may see them more likely to go to avoidance. Because even if it's the 12 sessions, if we're stretching it out over 12 weeks, or if it's like most providers where... You schedule it weekly, but maybe in reality, the research shows it's like 11 days between sessions on average. Yeah. So it does stretch that out. But I think what we're doing is we're taking that same treatment and it's that time in between that is, I think is very critical. It's hard. They're on their own trying to manage and to cope. They have distress that I'm not sure how to cope with that or how to label that. And when we have that increased contact with the therapist and more time to, um, to quickly Address this to get through those hard periods on their own. That's really what we have um, hypothesized as one of the important pieces of doing mastery. Mm. Is we're giving them less time to um, avoid and less time to have that distress in between.
0: To have distractors come up.
2: Oh, life. and that, of course, yeah. too. Right, life. Yes, so much can happen in between, too.
1: Yeah, those are exactly the the challenges that I was thinking about when it comes to mm-hmm. kind of how we deliver these treatments in a standard fashion, meaning once yeah. or twice per week in our clinical practice. First, exactly that life gets in the way, right? A patient may <laughs> very um, intentionally agree to do three months worth of treatment and then life gets in the way. Work changes, family changes, et cetera. And, mm-hmm. and then you have to contend with that as well as the buildup of, of Cindy, what I'll call anticipatory anxiety or what I'll frame that way of like, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. you talk about a trauma on Tuesday, and then your next appointment is next Tuesday and you spend Wednesday through Monday worrying about, oh, no, I'm right. going to have to talk about this again in a <laughs> right. week. Um, it, I think it makes it harder for people to show up, right? It makes it harder to st- stay in there, as you said.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, you're really commenting on some of the things that I assumed were uh, that mass PE, and CPT would address. But that said, I'm curious, are there unique challenges associated with the mass delivery as well?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, Kevin, like you had mentioned, um, it's a lot of it's a lot of time all at once, Um, you know, and and I think for some that could be a reason why they choose not to engage in it. But also when we look at um, common reasons, because one thing that we've we've been collecting as we did our pilot and as now I'm working with a lot of other sites across the VA system to implement programs. Also, one of the common reasons, though, that people do come in is because of things like work. Now you would think maybe that's backwards, like, well, if you have work and you have childcare and you have all these other things you need to do, doing treatment all at once, maybe is too hard for some people, but for some, they can make temporary arrangements or temporary time off work um, and to consolidate that all at one point. So I think some of the things that could make it a unique challenge for the next Patient, the next veteran, the next client, right, could be the very thing that makes it easier for them too. So, all the clinicians that we work with, sometimes we think about what makes what makes us harder, or what would make somebody not ideal for this. We haven't really come up with a consistent thing um, that where we would say mass treatment is going to be harder for somebody, or there's going to be more barriers in doing it. Because again, the same thing could be a barrier is also an advantage to the next person.
0: You know, I've seen that even with uh, with service members, active duty service members that I've worked with, um, primarily doing prolonged exposure therapy. But, you know, there were things that got in the way, too, from training, you know, going out on field training or having mm-hmm. temporary duty assignments somewhere else that would interfere with, right. you know, kind of. The, the spaced treatment of pe and so there were times where we kind of not not because we were planful about it and like we should move this direction as a clinic and make sure we're offering this kind of did it spontaneously of let's let's get in as many sessions as we can before you you know are, are deployed or before you go out on field training so yeah i mean yeah. there certainly are those opportunities where it is ideal
2: mm-hmm. yeah i think that oh go ahead Don't no, go ahead Oh, no, I was, I, I was, I was going gonna to change
0: directions, so.
2: So was I.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so let Would me you ask you a question then. <laughs> then. Okay, so yeah. one of the things I think that that may, maybe, and you've probably encountered this because I'm guessing that at least my journey here is reflecting a little bit about some of the concerns mm-hmm. or maybe some of the hesitations that you had. Um, I think something that that myself and maybe other practitioners are, are thoughtful about is just homework between sessions, right? So especially in prolonged exposure therapy, um, we have, there's a lot of homework between sessions. There's in, mm-hmm. in vivo exposure exercises. There's uh, listening to the audio recording of imaginal exposure. Um, and there's you know a, a number of other things that somebody is doing between sessions and kind of based on the idea that, that there's a dose response relationship with exposure, for example, right? Like the more exposures that you do or successful exposures you do, we expect that the, the higher the likelihood of outcomes. And so in the idea of like a a masked PE, for example, where we're kind of cutting out all those extra doses of exposure between sessions, it's fascinating that you're getting, you know, very similar outcomes here too. I wonder if you could speak to that.
2: Well. Another thing, right, that we've had conversations with as well, because it, it that was our initial concern, our initial thoughts. But when we looked at the amount of work that we saw many of our clients doing in between sessions, it it really seemed to be that when they were doing mass treatment, their mind was set, like, this is what I'm doing. I am putting my energy towards this for two weeks during my life, three weeks during my life. And we found that um, their follow-through with homework, um, they were doing two to three in um in vivo exposures a day. Wow. We sometimes adjusted the listening because there's you know also only so much time in a day, too, um, obviously. Right. And so, you know, we we would have them make sure they listen to um their imaginal that portion of their session more often, but maybe the whole session, we didn't have time in between. But we did in the program we piloted and the ones that I'm working to implement across the system right now, we are encouraging programs to give time for their clients to work on assignments during the day. And then we have a brief accountability check-in later on for all the veterans that are doing that work. And perhaps it's that added piece. It also helps with getting more of these assignments done. But I think it really is this immersive experience that they're yeah. there, their mind is in it. Um, we're not having to always go back, you know, for thinking of the analogy of getting back into the water again, we don't always have to go back to, you know, the, the hotel and then work back into the ocean. They're standing right. at the side of the ocean, you know, before their next session always. And so I think it is, um easier from our experience to get them re-engaged in the material because they're there and they're staying there. You know, same with CPT. Um, we set some expectations. We would like you to do three worksheets in between sessions. But really the important thing is we want you to be engaged in what you're doing and thinking about your what you're doing. And we find that they remain, I think, more within that space because it's not just here's this one day where I'm doing this work and then I'm going to turn this off, you know, the rest of my oh, yeah. day. Um, and so it, it does seem, and the outcomes show we're getting those same, the same results in the end. That's so, I think that's how we would account for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. You I really guess, have yes. me
1: thinking about the different places and um, settings where this can or and cannot, I guess, be offered. And you're you've been talking about the VA, and I work in the VA system for a long time, as well as the DoD system. And I think about how it has a lot of. Um, specific resources associated with it. Right? You have a lot of people and a lot of interests that can back you up. You also have a lot of specific challenges, a lot of bureaucracy. Um, but you could say the same thing about private practice or community mental health, right? Each is going to have their own sets of challenges or um, resources. I, I think given that we have a wide variety of listeners, it would be really great to hear about how, how you think providers can start to be implementing this in their own practice. What do you think providers need to do in order to make this accessible, to increase accessibility?
2: So I have found in the work implementing um, that we've been doing, um, the clients, the veterans, they are relatively easy to say, hey, this is what we're doing and this is why it makes sense. And they say, that sounds great. I have found as providers, that that's more where um, our barriers come up, where we are more skeptical, we're not sure. The people, maybe once we have buy-in, the people that send us referrals or that flow into the work that we're doing, that's where, again, we see a little bit more hesitancy. Um, So I think the first step is, is just really honestly kind of exploring if there's any biases or any concerns. And if there are, it's okay, listen to those, but dig into what does the research say? finding um, other providers that are doing the work, because I think some of us are more inclined to change based upon what we read in the research. Others, others of us are more inclined to open up to a new clinical experience based on other clinicians. So I think keeping in mind, there's a community of people that are doing this sort of work. So leaning in, connecting to them, but reading the, reading the research as a place to start. Once you as a provider have some buy-in for this, I think you will see that the flow happens pretty naturally. We use a pretty simple um, analogy when we're talking about the rationale to people that are thinking about this and shared decision-making. And it's, do you want to take off the Band-Aid slow or fast? Mm -hmm. And most people are like, please, please take it off quickly. And so um, that's kind of like a simple way we've been able to do that. But again, I think the first step really is focus on that buy-in and explore that yourself to make sure you feel open, comfortable, and um, to invite in questions that you may have. So you can research that and look that up. Um, But I think that would be my first recommendation for an actionable step for people to take.
1: That's really helpful. I know you've written a lot on this topic and the research is certainly available. So maybe we will tap you later to see what are maybe yeah. some of the best places for folks to start that research, to start the reading and check right. into their own biases.
2: Right. right. And and to I, I think, keep in mind, one of the big questions we get from people too, so it's, you know, listen to those questions that you have, but one of the, the big ones we get is, so you oh. see the change and you see the difference, but will it be maintained in the same way? And so the research continues to support that, that we see the same levels of maintenance after treatment. Um, but I think if a person um, is in, there's a variety of environments in which they provide care um, of people that are listening. And I think um, once you inform yourself, um, ask those questions and and you know begin to look for some of those answers, if it's something that someone wants to move forward and do, Um, I I really think it's just having, you know, finding some ways to have a little bit of that flexibility. Um, But I think when we want to work with a new patient and it's our first time doing it also of seeking that consultation, because I don't know about you guys, but like the first time I learned prolonged exposure, I needed a consultant to help hold me to what I was doing because I had these doubts in my mind And the providers I've worked with have said after they've gone through and seen a few cases this way, it really has restored their um, hope. It's restored their sense of faith and how strong um, people that have been through trauma, what they're able to do, and what they're able to accomplish. But sometimes we do need other people to help hold us to that, um, to help us hold that hope before we have it ourselves. Oh, Cindy, you are preaching to the choir. I can't <laughs>
1: tell you how every week we sound like broken records because we always end with, yeah. you should pursue consultation. And so we're really glad right. that message is coming from okay. somebody other than us. It's oh, really helpful. <laughs> you know, speaking of the message that we give to yeah. our listeners, one of the things that we've been doing this season is we've also been trying to demonstrate that even though we may be subject matter experts on these various treatments, that we make mistakes too and we manage to recover from them and actually maybe even learn something in the process and um we're hoping that you're like us and a little bit fallible and maybe have made an error once or so in your career and maybe you have a story <laughs> that you're willing to share with us about a time when things didn't go quite right
2: <laughs> well for sure <laughs> i definitely have made mistakes <laughs> and i think um as you say that's you know, that's certainly how we learn and certainly how we do better is to be able to acknowledge that and to talk with others and to um, you know, lean in and and keep moving forward. So so I have many that I could choose from because again, <laughs> I am human. Um well, please step into our confessional and share. Sure oh step into yeah. confessional. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's see here. Um, you know, I I am going to go with, um, I have seen like in my career feeling kind of like this pendulum that can shift and pendulum that can go back and forth. So in my um, initial training as a therapist, we didn't like back in grad school, we didn't learn as much about doing protocol based treatments, um, on internships, I had to learn a lot more about these protocols and, um, so my pendulum started with, oh, I'm not sure, but I'm going to lean in and try. And then I'm like, Oh, this is amazing. It works. And, you know, doing things and, um, you know, following this protocol, finding, following the, um, you know, this is how the script is supposed to go. And so I can think of a particular example, um, where I had a, a veteran. So I had a few successes, things were going great. So, um, I had a veteran that came in and, um, She was definitely just not, just not feeling it. But I had these great experiences. I knew that in this case, it was prolonged exposure. I knew prolonged exposure, how well it could work for somebody. And, you know, I think she was very, very clearly telling me, I'm not sure if this will work, but in my excitement, in my my enthusiasm, I kept pushing, I kept Mm -hmm. saying, no, it's okay. You can do it. This is just your avoidance. And she's like, well, no, really, there's a little bit more going on. And I'm like, no, 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 we're going off protocol. Let's get back. Um, <laughs> and what do you think happened? She never came back, right? Right. right. And this is, you know, I think like, well, eventually she did. Don't worry. I'm going to get back to that. Right. <laughs> but good, good. she dropped out. Right. She dropped out. And, um, you know, I, I had had my first four PE cases go amazing. These great outcomes. Mm-hmm. And it was you know, I think a little bit challenging to see. And I was upset to see because I felt like this was somebody I really wanted this for, and I wanted her to get better. But what I really failed to do is to listen to where, where she was at. I felt so much that I have to push and, you know, this is avoidance if someone brings up something and sometimes it is right. Often it may be, but I don't think I had this personal willingness to, um, come together and form the alliance on like, let's talk about that together. Let's conceptualize that together. Let's have a discussion. I really felt like I was leaning too much on no, this is how we do it. This is the order in which we do it. And um, I think there was pieces of it. that I just wasn't being um, sensitive to um, all of her circumstances that were going on in her life. Um, you know, thankfully, about a year or two later, um, she was referred back and, you know, she was like, oh, I couldn't believe you were so rigid. And um, and that's people that know me. That's just not my nature. Right. But that was my pendulum going over here, feeling like that's what I needed to do. But I think what amazing feedback, is,
0: though, too. Right. Like we don't always yes. get that kind of feedback from a client. Oh, yeah. we, they don't come back often a year later and say, right. hey, how you talked about this landed on me right. weird and, and get a chance to work on that.
2: Exactly. And I and I think. I think what I was able to learn and I still have to continue to figure out and learn is how do we do the protocols? How do we do them with competence but also be ourselves, right? And be yeah. be a, who I am as a therapist but I also can follow these and I really felt like I had to sacrifice one for the other and you know figuring that out but I think it's an ongoing thing and I think even with this Work we do in mass treatment, you know, we really have to say, we want to hold you to this. You got to do this work. But at some point, we also have to make sure we're really listening. We're connecting to the values of the person that we're with too. So it was, that was one of my important lessons I've learned. And, um, that's I know that's fun. Oh it is. That's so
0: validating too. Cause you know, yes. like how, yes. how many of us haven't been there, right? Cause right. I almost feel like a mentor told me one time very early on in my training, you know, that sometimes we don't know where the line is until we cross it. And not mm-hmm. that we're looking to cross lines, but right. we can always look for those opportunities to learn something like you, you adjusted, you calibrated yeah. kind of, you know, that, like that adherence and being mm-hmm. present as a human in the room. And that, it almost feels like that's an important developmental experience for any of us as a therapist. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yes. And an yeah. ongoing one, right? Because like, yeah. like you're saying, Cindy, yeah. the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. Like <laughs> it does. For, it right? Does. And so you just need to keep recalibrating. I know it's something we talk yeah. about even at the start of every CPT training. How do you balance mm-hmm. yep. fidelity with yeah. being an empathic human being in right. the room with your clients? What a great example. So
0: important. Oh, well, so what if we shift then to uh, every episode we like to end with actionable intel, basically just what are those two or three nuggets of things any of our listeners can do today, whether that's, you know, to you know look up a resource and start learning or whether it's uh, yeah. a skill that they can start implementing now. What, what are your sure. thoughts? What are some okay. two or three nuggets?
2: All right. So some thoughts that I have. Um, I think first of all is right. Looking at your own personal um, openness and buy-in there's, we talked about there's research, right? There's a really cool podcast um, that was done um, talking about CPT delivered daily um, um, on this American life. It was great. So if it's something you just want to hear about um, really encourage them to, to listen. So I think that's a first step is, is just, Open yourself up to that, read about it, do some research. If it's something that somebody wants to start dabbling in, it feels, I think, very overwhelming to say, I have to shift everything right now in order to do mass treatment. I think there's ways to begin within our own practice, beginning to think about how to do that. Like, for example, if um, you have someone that you typically see, you have a lot of people you typically see weekly, one of them is going to be off this week why not take another one of your clients, right? And say, well, Hey, let me explore giving you a session two times a week just for this week. Right. (laughs) I think there's ways to begin thinking about the space that we're in and how we can begin to stretch that. We don't have to go with everything being implemented in a perfect way. Um, One expression we use in implementation is we can't let um, perfect be the enemy of the good. And, um, and just can. keep thinking of ways that we can stretch ourselves and ways that we can start moving in that direction and not feeling frozen by, we have to do everything, you know, five times a week in order to be doing mass treatment. You know, if there's benefit to it, it's not all or nothing. Um, So start thinking of creative ways to start, um, you know, bringing more. But then I think the, the last one, um, I would say is like a nugget or takeaway is, um, how, Strong and how um, amazing our clients can be and to think that they can do this. And that is one of the biggest eye-opening things that the faith that we can have in them, that they can do this type of work, they can do it daily and they can do amazing. That even if we can't change how often we're seeing some of our clients to begin to challenge what we believe um, and that there's new ways to do things. Um, I think that's the, I think that last takeaway.
0: Such great ones, and then of course you mentioned some resources and maybe some readings. So we'll uh, we'd love for any of your suggestions. We'll get those okay. maybe off the show, and we can yeah. add those to the show notes. So those of you that yeah. are listening, check out the show notes for any resources or links. Yeah.
1: yeah. And don't forget that Cindy also mentioned consultation because we would be remiss if we went an entire (laughs) episode without recommending consultation. Yes,
2: (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I never would have um, considered going down this path if I didn't have others that were open to talking and to sharing their experiences. So um, yeah, absolutely encourage people to reach out and consult. (sighs) Well,
1: thank you so much, Cindy, for thank talking you. with us about Mass CPT and PE, giving us an update and some ideas for how to get started. I appreciate you talking about it just in a flexible way. Like this is actually something yeah. I can start doing. I can start doing it in my own practice because I don't have to go full throttle. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So thank you so much for having us. Um, thank you, Kevin, for being here with me. for this Thank study. you.
0: It's always a pleasure.
1: And... Um, that's it, folks. We'll talk to you next time.
0: Bye-bye. Talk to you later.
1: Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice.
0: Please feel free to subscribe, like, and share.
1: Until next time.